Emmett Fox, Power Through Constructive Thinking, The Garden of Allah. Please note this book was written in 1932. Uh, the circumstances in the world were different to some extent. The content is about a poem and the truth that can be found in poems. Isaiah 35 There is no God but God from the Quran. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. The Bible Even those who love the Bible most are apt to make the mistake of looking upon it as merely a book. The greatest book ever written no doubt, but still a book. Whereas the truth about the Bible is that it is really a spiritual vortex in which spiritual power pours from the absolute or divine plane into the physical plane or plane of manifestation. But the Bible is not the only great source of spiritual truth it is also the greatest collection of literary masterpieces that we possess. Almost every literary form is represented in the Bible, both in prose and poetry, history, biography, philosophy. The short story in its perfection reread some of the parables, for example. The epic and even that supposedly modern form, the novel, are all found there. The book of Job is really a play, and Revelation is a drama in form so strange and unprecedented that it remains in its entirety almost incomprehensible to most people however much they may appreciate its separate details. <coughs> Above all, the Bible abounds in beautiful and powerful prayers or treatments, and this alone makes it for us the most important book in the world. This is because prayer is really the only thing that matters. The only way in which man can improve himself or his conditions, get a better knowledge of God, save his soul in short, is by prayer. Prayer indeed is the only real action there is. That is to say, it is the only action that makes things different. Whenever you pray, you change your soul for the better. If the prayer is very short, or the degree of realization very poor, the change it brings about may be small, but it does occur. It could not by any chance happen under any circumstances that any man or woman could pray for a single moment without some result for good following. Whenever you pray, your whole 
subsequent life is, as a consequence, somewhat different from what it should have been had you not prayed. Now, prayer is the only thing that does change the quality of the soul. Any other activity may make a quantitative change in the soul by adding experience or by extending one's fund of knowledge, but it does not change the quality. Only prayer does that, and it is the quality of one's soul that determines his destiny. As long as there is no qualitative change in your soul, you will, under any given circumstances, say or do the thing that which a person as you are would say or do in such a case, because we never really act out of character. We are never other than ourselves. When we try to be other than ourselves by any effort of human will, we are just being ourselves all the more on that account. When you pray, however, you, by that act, becomes at least a slightly different man, and therefore all your subsequent activities are different too. So prayer is that only thing that matters. The word treatment is a technical term that many of us use for prayer that is directed to the overcoming of a specific practical difficulty. And the Bible is full of prayers and treatments of every kind. When you find yourself in any kind of trouble, no matter what it may be, whether you think it is caused by someone else's conduct, or whether you feel that it is your own fault, or whether it seems to be no one's fault, in any case, the only possible thing to do is to treat yourself about it. If you give yourself an efficient treatment, or it may be that several treatments will be necessary, then the difficulty, whatever it is, will presently disappear and you will find yourself out of your trouble. In other words, your prayer will be answered, or, as we often say, you will make your demonstration. But what is a treatment? Well, briefly, a treatment means that you recollect and realize the truth about God until you have brought about a change in your own consciousness, whereupon, as a result of this change in yourself, the outer things completely change too. Note particularly that this does not mean merely that you gain courage or fortitude to meet your difficulties in a new spirit. That would be better than nothing, but not much better. The tremendous fact is that prayer does change things. 
as a consequence of the change in your mentality that results from your treatment, outer conditions change completely. Other people change their conduct and their attitude toward you. Unpleasant things that would otherwise have been happening, those things do not happen. And good things that would not have happened, had you not prayed, do happen. Brought by prayer alone. Prayer does change things. Now, how is the necessary change in consciousness to be brought about? Or, in other words, how is it a treatment made? Well, the first thing to realize is that merely repeating a form of words is seldom any use at all. That is better than nothing if you should be so frightened or worried that you cannot do anything more. In fact, to cling to a single phrase may be the only thing that can save you in a great emergency. But fortunately, such an extreme condition is very exceptional. It is the change in feeling and conviction that matters. Any means that brings this about, and whatever means does it most quickly, is the best treatment. Whatever will raise your consciousness from the lower level of trouble to the higher level of freedom is a treatment. In many cases, the quiet, thoughtful repetition of certain affirmations of truth is sufficient, such as, I am surrounded by the love and peace of God, or divine intelligence opens my way. Sometimes, and especially, if you are faithful in daily prayer and meditation, the mere momentary feeling out for God will clear the most formidable difficulty with the most formidable difficulty which Now, how is it necessary to change in consciousness to be brought about? Or in other words, how is a treatment way made? Well, the first thing to realize is that merely repeating a form of words is seldom any use at all. That is better than nothing if you should be so frightened or worried that you cannot do anything more. In fact, to cling to a single phrase may be the only thing that can save you in a great emergency. But fortunately, such an extreme condition is very exceptional. It is the change in feeling and conviction that matters. Any means that brings this about, 
and whatever means does it most quickly, is the best treatment. Whatever will raise your consciousness from the lower level of trouble to the higher level of freedom is a treatment. In many cases, the quiet, thoughtful repetition of certain affirmations of truth is sufficient, such as, I am surrounded by the love and peace of God, or divine intelligence opens my way. Sometimes, and especially if you are faithful in daily prayer and meditation, the mere, um, the, that is to say, the mere momentary feeling out for God will clear the most formidable difficulty with lightning-like rapidity, feeling out in thought, that is to say, without formulating any words at all. The reading of a page of any spiritual book that appeals to you, or, above all, a few verses or a chapter from the Bible, often constitute a most powerful treatment. It is for this reason that the Bible has so many prayers and treatments included in its pages. The literary arrangement in which we have received our Bible is very misleading in many instances. The division in that is to say the divisions into chapters and verses was made comparatively recently. The original writers had nothing to do with it, and it was done in an arbitrary fashion that paid very little attention to the subject matter concerned. So it happens that with a writer, such as Isaiah, for instance, his works have been run together with little or no regard to sequence of subject or chronological order, and then, so to speak, chopped up into approximately equal lengths, which are called chapters. In addition to this, a great deal of material, splendid in itself, but not belonging to the prophet called Isaiah has been included. Of course, this makes no practical difference at all, as long as we know about it. The actual writer of anything in the Bible does not matter in the least, because the true author of it all is the Holy Spirit. One of the greatest prayers or treatments ever written is included among the writings of Isaiah and is known to us as chapter 35. This chapter number, as we have seen, is purely an arbitrary designation. The chapter itself has nothing in particular to do with either chapter 4 or chapter 36. That number has no more interest that is intrinsic significance than the number a book may bear on the shelf of a library. As this chapter constitutes a particularly beautiful and effective treatment for any purpose, we shall now consider it at some length.
the first thing we notice is that in its literary form, it is a glorious poetic rhapsody. The writer in contemporary form or is contemplating the wonder and love of God rises to a white heat of spiritual exaltation. The leaden shoes of fear and doubt that glue man to the earth in his everyday life are cast aside, and he rises on the pinions of divine inspiration into the region where all his petty limitations and handicaps vanish in the splendor of the divine presence. For the time being, he leaves behind he leaves behind him every small and mean thing that keeps a man from God, from joy and freedom. And as he has succeeded in enshrining this transcendent experience in words that still live and glow today with much of his own original divine ecstasy, it becomes possible for us in using this prayer with spiritual understanding to kindle our own torch from the same fire. And if we can tune ourselves in with this note to transcend also any particular difficulty or group of difficulties that may be oppressing us. <coughs> the wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. The first thing that strikes us here is that the writer is, of course, as all Bible writers are, an Oriental, and therefore he will give his message in the language and idiom of the Orient. This is so obvious that it would be unnecessary to mention it did we not know how many European and American people go down to the last generation were in the habit of taking every oriental simile and flourish at its face value, and often trying to apply it with the utmost literalist to come to some condition of life in London or Manchester or Chicago. He begins with his prayer in the best possible way that a prayer can begin, by a splendid act of faith in God. Always begin your prayers with an act of faith. Remember that Jesus tells us that faith in the love of God will literally move mountains. And so our Oriental prophet starts with what is doubtless the greatest affirmation of faith in God of which an Oriental is capable. He looks to God and cries, The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom 
as the road. Think of it, the oriental desert to become a garden, to blossom as a rose, to be the center of prosperity and riches. None in our human experience can ever seem, on the face of it, less probable than this. No human trouble could be more difficult than this problem of turning the desert into a smiling garden. But with God, all things are possible, absolutely all things, anything. And so to him, the redemption of a desert wilderness is just as easy as anything else. The Bible is predominantly the book of a desert people. Always as the great drama of the Bible story moves across the stage of time, we are conscious of the desert as the background against which it moves. Palestine, a narrow strip of land not bigger than Wales by much, was hemmed in by a desert on three sides. And that background, being hemmed in to a desert on three sides, uh, the unattractive sea being the fourth is unfamiliar to them as well. Almost everything that came into Palestine came across a desert. Goods and merchandise made their slow way in the leisurely desert caravans. All visitors who came to that country came through the desert and arrived wearied and parched with its sand and dust. And many new ideas that might filter into the world of Palestine had to filter through the desert too and would inevitably arrive like tr the travelers themselves bearing about them something of the same desert atmosphere. For just as to people living in the British Isles, the sea is always the background. It is the sea that has molded their history and conditions their everyday lives. They have never seen it, so the people of Palestine, though they might never venture into the wilderness itself, were shaped and governed from last to first by the eternal, unchanging desert and the conditions of life that spring from a desert home. Always the desert haunted them. There is not a page in the Bible in which we do not vaguely sense the eternal sands and hear the distant tinkle of the camel bells. And so for us of the West, it calls for a distant effort of the imagination truly to appreciate this splendid declaration with which the poet opens his prayer. He takes the one condition above all others and with which man had been totally unable to deal 
much less to conquer the desert. The one condition, perhaps, which would seem to him as an Oriental to be eternal and unchangeable. The one condition, we may say, that it would be utterly hopeless to think of changing. And he declares that the goodness and love of God shall completely conquer this. How completely and thorough that conquest is to be is signified by piling up in the Eastern way symbol upon symbol. It shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. One of the richest and most splendid of God's creations, calling for a special quality of soil and particular care in its culture. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it, the excellency of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. On and on he goes in pursuit of this great theme. The glory of the desert redeemed is to be in proportion to its former barrenness. It shall rejoice with joy and singing. Glory of every kind shall be heaped upon it. The glory of the desert redeemed is to be in proportion to its former barrenness. It shall rejoice with joy and singing. Glory of every kind shall be heaped upon it. The especial glory that the poet knew in his time as only to be found among the cedars of Lebanon, the austere grandeur that he felt only in Carmel, and the sweet fragrant peace that he had known among the beautifully kept gardens of Sharon. He closes this first stanza, his opening declaration of faith, by reaffirming, they shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. In reading this carefully, we begin to catch something of the prophet's own divine faith in the goodness of God, and as faith is infectious, we find the power of his understanding gradually fanning our tiny spark of it into a flame. Below each level of thought in the Bible, there always lies yet a deeper level for those who can find it, and so it is here, Lebanon. Carmel and Sharon in detail stand for certain spiritual faculties in the soul of man that gradually develop as he persists among the pathway of spiritual awakening. And the prophet here implies, for those who can understand, 
that these definite spiritual gifts are the outcome, that is to say, the outcome of such prayers as this. Of course, the desert or wilderness is a general term for any kind of trouble or difficulty. It may be a specific problem that you have to overcome, or, in the wider sense, the general state of feeling cut off from God, of which we are all so conscious to our sorrow. It is interesting to note that, in a very wonderful and different sense, the desert may be taken to symbolize that state of mind in which man has attained to a higher degree of concentration upon God. Sooner or later, you will have to put God first in your life, that is to say, your own true spiritual development must become the only thing that really matters. It need not, perhaps had better not, be the only thing in your life, but it must be the first thing. When this happens, you will find that you have got rid of a great deal of the unnecessary junk that most people carry about. Mental junk. Of course, although physical junk is very apt to follow upon this. You will find that you will do a great deal less running about after things that do not matter and less running about after things that only waste your time and energy. When once you have put God first, your life will become simpler and quieter, but in the true sense, richer and infinitely more worthwhile. This has usually happened in the desert. The true desert wanderer has few physical possessions, none of our artificial needs, and few of our so-called comforts. Yet he is among the happiest of the human race. Commonly he fears nothing in life or in death. It was an Arab sitting at the door of his tent at night, free from the burden of useless possessions, his mind and heart clarified by simple living, who gazed up at the myriad golden stars so bright in the eastern sky, looked about him, looked about him with uninterrupted gaze to the distant dusky horizon and said, the desert is the garden of Allah. Strength ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are of fearful heart, be strong, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. 
The first stanza of this wonderful poem, Prayer, having led the reader to make a splendid declaration of faith, this, the second stanza, takes up definitely the task of working upon his consciousness direct. It says, strengthen ye the weak hands. Here we meet one of the most important symbols to be found in the Bible, the hand. The hand, briefly, stands for the power of manifestation or the capacity to express God's idea on the physical plane. It is the power of getting things done. It is the power of making demonstrations, as we say, or of getting answers to prayers. And so the expression, Strengthen ye the weak hands, is a command that we are to rise up out of limitation, refuse to put up with it, and insist upon harmony and freedom, that in fact we ought always to pray and not to faint. Jesus has told us by means of two separate parables that we are not to accept less than harmony, that we are to go on praying until we make our demonstration, that we are not to take no for an answer. And here the inspired writer teaches the same lesson. You should never put up with anything. You should never be content to accept less than harmony, peace, and freedom. Until you get these things, you must be insistent in prayer. The particular symbol is a very interesting one. Man is, in his true nature, a spiritual being, a spark from the divine fire. But this divine spark, the I am, has to be embodied, and the human body with which we are familiar, which we all carry about with us, is really but an embodiment of the various faculties and capacities of the divine I am. Actually, we are at present seeing this embodiment in a very, very limited way, even in the case of the most healthy and beautiful bodies. Nevertheless, that is what it is, the real self, or I am. As the power of manifesting absolutely any idea or set of ideas, which it can understand, even to some extent, and this power we can see embodied as the hand. In all ages, the hand has been understood symbolically in this way. We speak of a thing being handy, a person who performs all sorts of essential business for another is often spoken of as his right hand. At banquets, the guest of honor is placed at the right hand of the hosts. The Christ truth sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. 
It is the Christ nature that manifests God through man. The word for hand in Latin is manus, and this is derived originally from a Sanskrit word meaning the thinker. Our English word man ultimately derives from the same root and carries the same implicit meaning. And we know that it is man's reason for being to manifest God. Man the manifester is or should be the hand of God through which God works. And this he is through his power of thought because he is essentially a thinker. When we wish to paralyze a man's activities, we handcuff him, thereby putting his hands out of action. And to have both hands amputated is reckoned as most complete disablement. This is the end of uh, Power Through Constructive Thinking, the Garden of Allah, the end.